time we're going to talk about the power of the blood of Jesus. Amen. It's sermon 22, title 21. We're closing it up today. I'm so happy the Lord gave me the honor of digging into his word that much and study the scripture about the blood of Jesus. We have gone through every single scripture in the New Testament that mentions the blood of Jesus. Amen? Whether literally the blood or metaphorically or figuratively the blood, we studied every single one of them. We did every single scripture, and I think that's the way to go. Amen? If we're going to study a topic, we're not going to ignore some scriptures that seems to be difficult or whatever. We're just going to plow through every single one of them. Amen? So today we're going to close with this title that the last thing we're going to talk about is rejecting the blood. What happens if you reject the blood of Jesus? Our passage is from Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 to verse 31. So let's read this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. (coughs) Talking about scary. This is one of the scariest passages in the scripture. Um, It consumes the enemy of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? And look at this. And has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctifies them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, or vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a dreadful, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Amen? So that is the last verse that we have not discussed yet that mentions the blood of Jesus in the New Testament. And this one is about what happens if you reject the blood of Jesus. And I was thinking this is going to be a a walk in the park for me to study, but it wasn't. It was very brutal, actually. Um, So there's a lot of opinions about this passage and what it actually says. The question that we want to study first is, who is this passage talking to? Is this passage talking to believers, people who already know Jesus? Or is it talking to unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus? Because it, if depending on whom this passage is addressing to, a whole different theology we can draw from that. So let's look at the first option. Was it written to people who are born again, who believe in Christ, who have repented of their sins, who know for a fact that they have eternal life? Well, there's some arguments for that. Some people say, yes, it is written for believers, and here is why. Number one, the context of that passage, I think from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to verse 39, which is pretty much the bulk where this passage is falling, it all seems to be addressing believers. Verse 19, the author of Hebrews said, okay, brothers and sisters, all right, brethren, let us go with boldness into the throne of grace. And he addressed them as brothers. That's in verse 19. And throughout the whole passage, he's talking about believers, 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 you would not If you're reading this passage for the first time, you'll know he's talking to somebody who seems to be a believer. So the context say it's believers. Number two, 
I think that's ESV. But in Greek, this passage, verse uh, 26, actually starts with the word for. For if we sin willingly, it's, the ESV doesn't have it, but the Greek has it. For if we sin willingly. So the word for here tells us that the author of Hebrews is building up to what he has been discussing before. This is not a brand new thought. He's continuing the thought that he has been addressing from verse 19 to verse 39. So that's the second point. Number three, he says that, um, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received what? The knowledge, the knowledge of that truth. Now, the word receiving the knowledge of the truth is mentioned four times in the New Testament. I just mentioned one example here. But every time it talks about receiving the knowledge of the truth, it talks exclusively about believers. Every, every other time that phrase was mentioned in the New Testament, it's always believers who have received the knowledge of the truth. For example, for Timothy 2.4, uh, Paul refers to God our Savior as, he's the one who desires that all men to be saved and do what? Come to the knowledge of the truth. So every time again, knowledge of the truth is mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament, talks about believers. So that's an, a third um, Enforcement to that. Number four, it talks about the blood and says he counts as unholy the blood of the covenant that sanctifies that person, that sanctifies him. So from that verse, we see that this person who's rejecting Christ, rejecting the blood, is already what? Sanctified. So that has to be a believer. Even in the context, Hebrews 10.10, just earlier in that chapter, the author of Hebrews is saying that it is by the sacrifice of Christ that... Um, he says, made holy, that Jesus has made holy or sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once and for all. So in the context, sanctification in Hebrews chapter 10 talks about somebody who genuinely has been sanctified by Christ. So for these four reasons, um, people think, and there's some others, but these are the main ones. Um, people say, hey, he is talking about people who are truly born again, who truly have eternal life. Now, let's just reason through that. Now, I want to tell you that the argument back and forth, I'm just debating that scripture in my brain still. So everything I tell you, it's kind of like probabilities and chances more than this is exactly what the Bible say. Amen? Um, so this is just, we're reasoning through the scripture here, try to see exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. But at the end of the day, you're going to see that there is nothing 100% solid. This is exactly what we know he's trying to tell us. Amen? This is probably what he's trying to tell us. Let's look at the first um, argument. They're saying that the context say that it's all believers. It's correct. The context talks about all believers. But the author of Hebrews did not finish that chapter until he made a, a quite a distinction between two groups of people. If you go all the way down to verse 38 and 39, he reads this. And... Now he's quoting the Old Testament scripture from verse 838. But my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. This is a quote from the Old Testament in Hebrews 10, 38. Verse 39, this is the author of Hebrews' comment on that Old Testament scripture. And he says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So even though in the whole context he seems to be talking to believers, yet before he left us, he made sure to understand that there is kind of two camps. There is those who backslide and perish, and there is those who 
actually never going to happen to them, that they're never going to backslide, and they will never going to perish, okay? So the context also is trying to distinct between two groups. Number two, it says that, you know, um, the author of Hebrews, um, I apologize, um, one of the arguments too is that he says in verse 26, if we deliberately sin, so he's, you know, saying this is for all of us, including believers, that's why it's written for believers. But the answer to that is this, it seems like, from reading throughout the book of Hebrews, that even though the, book, the author of Hebrews is using the word we, it's more like for him to identify with the readers than and actually trying to say, I subject to the same dangers. Like, for example, Hebrews 2, 3, he says, how shall we escape if we ne neglect such a great a salvation? I don't think the author of Hebrews' intention from that part is to say, I'm concerned about my own salvation. I don't know if I'm not gonna, if I'm gonna make it or not. You know what I mean? It seems like he's trying to encourage the readers to hold fast, to hold fast into the faith, but he's identifying himself with them. I don't. Again, that's more a personal opinion than here is exactly what the Bible say. I don't see or think for a second here that the purpose of the author of Hebrews saying how we escape if we neglect such a greater salvation that he's saying. I'm not sure about my own eternal life. I might lose it any second. You know what I mean? I don't think that's the point here. Now, the last two arguments, it's kind of difficult. Again, this is probably, we're thinking about the scripture here, trying to reason with it. So it says that the word knowledge of the truth is exclusively used for born-again believers. It's absolutely true. Here's some ideas, not 100% solid arguments, but some ideas. Let's look at the broader context of, of the book of Hebrews, okay? If we go back to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, it's a very similar passage to the one that we're reading right now. So maybe if we look at Hebrews 6 and understand what he's talking there, that will help us a little bit have light in Hebrews 10 if he's really talking to believers who are already born again or not. So let's look at that. Hebrews 6, 4 to 9. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. It is impossible, he says, for those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit, um, who fallen away. Now, the very few uh, 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 adjectives here, how he described them, it seems like he's describing people who know Christ, who are born again, right? Um, and then he says, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subject him to public disgrace. Okay, so it seems like so far, he's saying there's some Christians who can backslide and never be able to return back to the faith. That's what he seems to be saying. But if we keep moving forward, he's using an analogy here. Look at verse 7. Here's the analogy. Here's how he's ex explaining that. Land that drinks the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those um, for whom it is farmed. It is farmed, receiving, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and um, thistles, okay, is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying there's two kinds of lands. So he's making an analogy. There is a land that they both receive rain, one of them produces fruits to the master, to the, to the farmer, and one of them doesn't. And he's saying that the land that produces fruit, this is good land, this is receiving praise, but the land that does not receive fruit or produces thorns, this is a land that will be cursed and will be burned. Notice he said that right after he said 
you know, you got, some people have tasted Jesus and they have backslid to the way that they can never come back. But in explaining that, he's saying, but wait a minute, just realize there's two camps of people here. There's some that actually produce fruit like the land and there's some that don't. And these people, he's saying, actually, let's read that last verse, verse um, 9. Even though, even though, now he's elaborating on that example. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case that things has to do with salvation. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, even though I'm saying there are some people who tasted Christ and they will backslide and they will never be able to be back. But for you guys, it's a little bit different. I am convinced that you know better things about salvation. In a way, he's saying, just like there's two kinds of lands, land that produces fruit to the master, that's you guys. And then there's another land that does not produce fruit to the master, have rain, but does not produce fruit, and they end up being cursed and burned at the end. That's the people who tasted Christ, but they have backslid to the point that they can never come back. Does that make sense? So even though it seems the language is very difficult and confusing, yet every time in the context, the Bible makes clear that there's two different kinds of camps. There's some who stick with it and some who don't stick with it. Those who stick with it are real, genuine believers, and those who don't, even though they share a lot of similarities with the genuine born-again believers, yet they end up ultimately backsliding and to the point that they can never come back to God. Clear? Okay, so it seems like, clear like mud, huh? It seems like the author of Hebrews in, in, in chapter 10, carrying the same principle that there are some people who appear from the outside that they are born again, who look like they are, have been known Christ for a while, who have experienced so much like the actual genuine believers, but at the end of the day, they're not really born again believers, right? Now, let's look at this other example or this other scripture, Luke eight thirteen. Look at this. Those or on the rock. Now Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower, and he's saying those on the rock are the ones. Look at this. Look at this. Who do what? Receive. They reject the word, right? They reject the word. They what? Receive the word with sadness. That's like now. Wait a minute. Let's pause here for a second. Receive the word with joy. Whoever you think can actually receive the word with joy. Like a born-again believer, right? Received the word with joy. He, he, he listened to it. He's very happy. He's very excited. He's so excited about Jesus. Amen? When they hear it, but they have no root. And look at this. They what? Believe for a while. They believe. Just like you and me. They believe. They, they say, I repent. And for a while, they seem like you and me, they're really walking with Jesus, right? But in the time of testing, what happened? fall away, right? I think personally, again, this is just I'm reasoning with description, this is probability not more than solid arguments. When Jesus said, in the time of hardship they fall away, doesn't that sound strikingly similar to the, to the Hebrews that the author of Hebrews wrote that book to? Because once they start facing persecution, they all start falling away, right? And he's encouraging them, no, hold fast unto the faith, don't abandon that, amen? So it's, I, I think this is more likely what the author of Hebrews, the kind of people that he's talking to. It's the same kind of people that Jesus was referring to in Luke chapter 8. It's the same kind of people that the author of Hebrews was referred to in, in Hebrews chapter 6, that even though 
they tasted and they have seen so much like the genuine born-again believers, yet once hardship comes, they might receive the word, like what the author of Hebrews said here, they receive the knowledge of the truth, right? But then once it really hits home, they're out. Amen? Again, this is more like, you know, I think that's what the Bible say more than this is exactly what the Bible say. Now let's look at the last one. They have been sanctified by the blood. Now, there are so many um, interpretations to the verse uh, that says that even though they're sanctified, they're not really born-again believers. Let me run some by you. None of them is 100% strong. I mean, it just gives you ideas to think. But the Bible is clear. They have been sanctified. I cannot argue much with that. But here's some ideas. Some people say that the one who is sanctified here is actually Christ, not the person who backslides. So they say, you know... Um, they deny or they count as unholy the blood, the blood of the covenant of the one who has been sanctified for them. And that is Jesus. Amen. So that's one way of looking at it. I'm not sure if that's 100% correct. Um, number two. Um, okay, so the word sanctified might be referring to the covenant. So they deny the blood of the covenant by which they are, by the which the blood by, okay, the covenant that was sanctified by the blood. So they're saying that the word sanctified here might be referring to the covenant, not the actual person who backslides from Christ. Third option is to say that the person, even though they're sanctified, but it doesn't mean they're truly born again believers. For example, we have a scripture for that in 1 Corinthians 7.14. It says this, that the unbelieving spouse is said to be what? Sanctified. In that believing marriage partner. So here we have somebody who's not a believer, yet he's sanctified. Something that the word sanctified here might just refer to um, just they the, the, the appear in the church crowd. They have been set apart with the group of the church to serve God. You know, they're sanctified in that sense. Maybe they actually have been baptized by water and said, hey, I'm sanctified now. Or they claim to be sanctified. There are so many ways of trying to understand that scripture. I personally think sanctified here doesn't mean they really, really experience the power of God. They have been really saved. But scripture is clear. I, I don't know the exact answer for that. Amen? Now, there's other reasons also why the author of Hebrews is not talking to believers. For example, in verse 26, he says, if we keep on sinning, right? The, the word keep on sinning in Greek is actually present time. So it's, it's like a continuous thing. Not a lot of people make a big issue of that. I think it might be a big deal, especially because we have in 1 John 3, 9, the Bible is clear that no one is born of God make a practice of sin. No one is born of God keep on sinning, okay? For God's seeds abide in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he is not even able to keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Amen? So maybe when the author of Hebrews is saying if we keep on sinning willingly, maybe keep on sinning here is a reference to what John was saying about that. If you keep on sinning, you're not really born again of God because you are incapable of keeping on sinning if you are born of the Spirit of God. Amen? Now, the other problem with that is this. If we're going to assume that these people are actually born again believers, that would stand in contrast with every clear scripture that clearly teaches in the Bible that the believers are secure in their eternity with Christ. Amen? You guys remember last week when we were talking about Jesus saying, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh so you can have eternal life. And what we said is this, 
When we want to understand the scripture, we don't start with a scripture that is hard to understand, put our understanding on it, and then try to bend and twist every clear scripture that says something else so we can fit it in the box that we have created for God's word. We say that, right? We say the best way to understand the scripture is to start from the scripture that is 100% clear. We know what it says, and then we try to understand the scriptures that are difficult in the light of the scriptures that are clear. Amen? Okay, so we know there are so many incidents in the scripture that talks that believers are secure in their eternity. They have eternal life and they know it. Very simple here. John 3.16. Can you help me out? What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes and abides and labor and work hard on it will not perish but have eternal life. Does the Bible say that? All it takes is just what? To believe. Granted that the word believe here is not just mental knowledge. It's to repent of your sins and make a commitment to live for Jesus. And that's what it means here to be believed. But that's all what it takes really. Once you make the commitment to follow Christ and you're born again of the Spirit of God, that's all what it takes for you to have eternal life and never perish, right? This is clear. We're not questioning that. Amen? John 10, 27 to 28. This is the promise of Christ. My sheep hears my voice and I know them. And then he gave us triple assurance. He said, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Triple assurance is right here. Once you're saved, once you're born again of the Spirit of God, you have eternal life. No question about it. That Christ will give you eternal life. You shall never perish. Just in case you're wondering about the first part. You shall never perish. And not only that, no one, no devil, no sin, no nothing can snatch you out of Christ's hand. Amen? First John 5.13. This is what John said. He said, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know that you have eternal life. I want you to be sure of that, that you have eternal life. And last example, Philippians 1, 23. Here is what Paul said. He said, I am pressed hard between the two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. But to stay here in the flesh is better for you. But he says, I have a desire to depart out of this flesh, out of this world. And not 100% sure what can happen to me after that. Did he say that? No, he said, I will depart and I will know for sure that I will be with Christ, right? So we have multiple, multiple scriptures that teaches that if you're truly born again of the Spirit of God, you will have eternal life. So this scripture, if the author of Hebrews here is talking about people who are truly born again believers, that they can backslide to the point that they can never have eternal life because there's no uh, sacrifice left for them, that stands in contradiction with every other scripture that teaches that we have eternal life. Okay? It's hard wording, no question about it. We're just reasoning through the scripture here. Amen? Amen. All right. Clear like mud? All right. (laughs) Now, some people came up with a way of understanding these verses that kind of like in the middle. So they say, he's definitely talking to born-again believers, okay? But he's not talking about them losing their eternal salvation. He's talking about some form of discipline that the Lord will incur on his children because they're, they're sinning and they're living in sin. Do you see that? That's, that's more like they're trying to catch the, the rod from the middle, you know? So, yes, it is born-again believers, no question about it, because the wording indicates that. But it might not be like really losing your salvation all the way to hell, but rather, you know, you're going to be disciplined 
and fire in it. When, 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 when the author of Hebrews says there is a fiery expectation of judgment, more here, more here is like the discipline of God on his children. That's what they're trying to reasoning here. There's a couple of ideas actually that can sound good. But long story short, I don't think that's the case. I really don't. Um, because the wording is just, he's talking about fear, being afraid of God, right? And it talks about if you do that, you're kind of like the enemies of God. I just don't see anywhere else in the scripture that a son, a child of God who's truly born again of God, it doesn't matter how badly they misbehave, they get to the point that they become an enemy to God or God considers them an enemy to him. Amen? And, you know, fearful expectation and dreadfulness and all this stuff. This is not the language that God uses to, di- to discipline his children. When God disciplines you and me for our misbehaving, he does it out of love to return us back to him. But he's not like this angry, mad father who's just waiting for us to sin so he can just inflict his wrath on us. So even though this can be a reasonable explanation to, to, to make everybody happy, I don't think that's the case myself. Amen? So what can the author of Hebrews is, um, what is the author of Hebrews here is talking about? Could he be talking about that verse from Luke again when Jesus said that some people receive the word with joy and believe for a while, but after that they fall away? I think that's what he's referring to. I think it's the same kind of group of people who receive the word in the beginning and then after that they fall away. Amen? Now, here's the thing about becoming a born-again believer or about becoming a Christian. A lot of people, like, especially here in America, like, now that I did not grow up here, I can say that. I can, I meet people who do every sin in the world, and they just, just live like a normal Christian secular person. They have sex outside of marriage, they do drugs, they lie, they manipulate, they cheat, they steal, they do every, they they live in sin. Sin is the norm of their life. And then they tell you, hey, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was 10 years old, right? Well, you didn't. If Jesus does not change your heart, then you don't know the Jesus that the Bible is talking about. Amen? The Bible is clear. If anyone in Christ Jesus, he is a... New creation. Jesus, when he comes into your heart, I don't see your heart, but I see that what Jesus does outside. I see how you behave, and by your behavior, I will know for sure. Not just me. Everybody will know if Jesus is truly in your heart. Amen? So that's why, for me personally, if I go out and share the gospel with a person, and they, hey, do you want to pray with me to receive Christ? Yes, I want to pray. You know what? I personally don't count that salvation or conversion, or whatever it is, still like five, six months down the road. If they have not changed, if there is no radical transformation in their life, I don't count that myself as evangelism salvation, or count that as a conversion. I don't count that at all. It absolutely means nothing, right? The true, genuine conversion, when you actually receive Christ into your heart, you will change. And this change is not just going to be for a while and then you fade away, but this actually will last for a life and then for all eternity. You made a commitment to live for Jesus and that will change you once and for all. Amen? So if you do not bear the fruit, and it's not that you're trying to do it, it's the Holy Spirit in you showing fruit that He actually dwells in your heart. You are not born again of the Spirit of God, and I don't care how much you claim that you are born again of the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen? So it seems like that's the group of people that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. It's people who say, oh, I'm good, you know, I, I, I go to church, I, I have been baptized, he even maybe used to be an atheist and then they decided to be a Christian or whatever, but they're not really 
genuinely born again of the Spirit of God. So that's, it seems like that's what he's talking about here. So what, um, how does God take that? Let's just look at a couple of things in that passage and we're going to be done very shortly. I was just studying this passage yesterday. It's amazing how many references from the Old Testament in that one small passage. Almost every verse is quoting Old Testament. This guy, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, he knew the Old Testament, no question about it. Let's look at that just, just to uh, make you think about the scripture a little bit. Verse 26, it says, If we sin willingly after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice left for us, right? It seems like he's quoting Numbers 15, 30 to 31. Here's what the Old Testament says. But anyone who sins defiantly, willingly, whether native born or a foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commandment. So it's like, it seems like verse 26 is a quote from Numbers. Then verse 27, he says, um, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It seems like it's a quote from Isaiah 26, 11. He says, Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Amen. Um, verse 28. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses without, on the mouth of two or three testimonies will die without mercy. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 17, 6. Um, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one... Um, who is to die shall be put to death. So it's like the guy, and not only that, he refers to the spirit of grace. That's a quote from uh, Zechariah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then verse 30, uh, he quotes two scriptures from the book of Deuteronomy. Do you see how many quotes from the Old Testament just in one tiny passage? This guy knew the word of God. Amen. So this is just good to know, you know. So what he's saying here is this. If we Say that we have been born again of the Spirit of God, but if we backslide or go away to the point that we can never actually be redeemed, we might have not even been born again in the first place. And he's saying, for those who do that, they actually, God doesn't take it very well. That's what he's trying to say. God is kind of like takes that very personally. When you say no to what Jesus has done on the cross, when you reject the cross, when you reject the blood, that's what we're talking about today, rejecting the blood. When you reject the sacrifice that Jesus has done for you on the cross, God kind of like get, take that a little bit personally. Amen? So how does, how does God look at that? He sees it in three different ways. He sees it as you are trampling by your foot the Son of God. Crazy. Not only that, he sees it that you count as unholy, as a filthy, defiled thing, the blood of the covenant by which you have been sanctified. And number three, he sees that you are insulting the spirit of grace. Amen. If you ever want to say no to Jesus, this is just listen to this. This is very scary, and I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. He's saying that you are trampling by foot. The Son of God. Now, every time the scripture talks about trampling by foot, it's talking about making something as if it's worthless, it's powerless, and it is of no good to, to nobody. Look at this scripture, for example. Matthew 7, 6. Jesus said, Do not give dogs, do not give dogs that is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them. This is something good. But because pigs don't get the value of it, they count that good thing as a worthless, nasty, 
piece of crap, so they just trample it under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So trampling something with your foot in the scripture, that's just, you're just making it as nasty and disgusting as it can ever get. You are making it so worthless. And not only that, look at Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to what? Because it's so worthless. This is what you do with worthless stuff. You do what? You throw it out and do what? And trample it under your foot because it's worthless. Luke 8.5. A farmer went out to, um, to sow his seed and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path and what happened to it? It was trampled on. Why? Because it's worthless. It's nothing. It doesn't have no value to it. And in so many ways... The author of Hebrews is telling us when you say no to the blood that Jesus has shed on the cross for your salvation. When you say no to God's salvation plan for you. You make the son of God worthless to you. And you, as if you physically trample him under your foot. I don't know about you. I don't want to do that to Jesus. Amen. Look. The author of Hebrews doesn't say you trample the son of man underfoot. He says you trample the son of what? God underfoot. He's choosing the words very carefully. The whole point, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is this. The supremacy of Christ. How Christ, how the Son of God is far more superior than anybody or anything ever existed. Amen? We talked about that before. In the beginning he says how Christ is superior than the prophets. Then how he's superior than the angels. How he's superior than Moses, than Joshua, than the Old Testament high priest. How he has a better ministry. He is superior. He is the divine Son of the living God. Amen? And Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he is the exact imprint of God's very own nature. He is exactly like God the Father. But yet this very Christ, if you say no to his salvation that he has done on the cross, what do you do to him? You say, I don't care how great you are, you are worthless for me. But number two, you count as unholy, as a defiled, filthy thing. The blood of the covenant That can ever sanctify you. Amen. Do you see the irony of the word here? It's the blood that makes you holy. Right? It's the blood that sanctifies. Makes you holy. But when you say no to Jesus. You count that one thing. That can ever make you holy. As unholy. As common. As normal thing. The word unholy here. It can be common. Or it can be. Like the Greek word for it can be defiled, something defiled. In a way, you, when you say no to what Jesus has done on the cross and say no to God's plan of salvation, you can, in, an, in an effect, you say, that blood that Jesus shed on the cross that we have been talking about for, for six months almost now, that very blood is worthless to me. It's just like any other common blood that has ever been shed, whether a blood of a man or a blood of an animal. Even a blood of a criminal murderer that was shed, I count the blood of Jesus as common as that blood when you say no to God's perfect salvation plan that he has done on the cross for you. Amen? Don't do that. But number three, you also insult, insult the spirit of grace. We talked about that. The spirit of grace is a quote from Zechariah 12, 1, when God said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. So the author of Hebrews is saying, the very spirit that brings you grace, the one thing that can ever possibly get you into heaven, you are insulting the spirit of grace when you say no to God's salvation plan. Amen? When you reject the blood of Christ. Amen? 
The word in, uh, insult here, it means to despite, to, to, to count as despitefully treated, you know? And it, in a way, it means kind of like that. You're, you're, you consider yourself to be higher, and you look down into it. You look down onto it, you know? So it's, it has a lot of arrogance and pride, and that's exactly what people do when they say no to God's salvation plan. Say, so you know what? I know Jesus can give me grace, but you know what? I'm going to get to God in my own way. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to do good, and I'm going to be a good person, and I'm going to end up in heaven. By doing that, you are counting the Son of God as worthless. You're counting the blood of the covenant as defiled, unholy, filthy thing. And not only that, you are being so prideful and arrogant that you are despitefully treating the Spirit of the Almighty God. Amen? No wonder the author of Hebrews closed that passage by saying it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Amen? God is not going to take that well. I'm just going to close with that quote that I was just reading about Spurgeon. Uh, he, he preached that one day. And he said, when you look on the cross, on that cross, Jesus died to provide salvation, right? And on that cross, we see how God cannot tolerate sin at all. He does not tolerate sin so much so that he did not even care to spare his own son. And he put his own judgment on Jesus on the cross because he needed to judge sin. Amen? What in the world makes you think that he's going to eventually spare you if you stick to sin? He did not spare his son. He's sure not going to spare you. Amen? Don't reject the blood of Jesus. Amen? Let's all close our eyes and pray.